Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter Do Death. Hey, Phoebe. So here we Hi. are. Episode are. nine. Episode nine. And it's the first one where it's still vaguely light outside after the uh, after the clocks went forward at the weekend. It's dark here, but yeah, we're further is. north than you. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it's been so nice, hasn't it? Like having a little bit more light in the evening, but totally confusing. Yeah, well, it's such lovely warm days, a couple of... Well, yesterday and the day before, but... Yeah, we today, were in the paddling pool and everything, but yeah, no. Today is uh, winter again. <laughs> yeah, and the weekend's not looking great. I think snow forecast for you. Yeah, we've got yeah snow forecast on Monday. Monday, <laughs> which is ridiculous. We were literally in the garden in like swimming costumes yesterday. <laughs> it's going to be snow and minus two. Was it on um, Sunday? The temperature is going to go from thirteen degrees to minus three up here. Apparently, in the forecast, like that's oh. ridiculous. That's quite a span of temperature. Crazy weather to go with the crazy times we live in at the um, moment. <laughs> yeah. Global warming, what? <laughs> Ugh, yeah. So we've got a couple of shout outs. Um, oh, I want to say uh, thanks to Emily for sharing us on her uh, Instagram, her her dog's Instagram actually, uh, Hank the Cocker. So shout out to Emily and Hank. Thanks for thanks for sharing. Thanks for the love. Um, <laughs> Emily's thanks. one of our established long time listeners. So. Oh, long time listener. <laughs> thanks for coming along, Emily. Um, and also to Sean. Thanks, thanks for the lovely message you sent, Sean. I'm really glad that you're here, and I'm glad that you're enjoying it. So. Uh, yeah, welcome. Yeah. Thank you for listening. <laughs> yeah, well, we're enjoying telling us, telling each other these uh, these Definitely. stories of uh, yeah. It's very quickly becoming the highlight of my week, <laughs> coming <laughs> and sitting and and, uh, and preparing the stuff and chatting and stuff. So yeah, it's good fun. It's yeah, good fun. it is good fun. Yeah. So, uh... so I've got something to ask you. Oh, okay. So um, I was listening to a podcast earlier from my faves, Necronomapod. Um, and they were talking about um, death row meals and what your last meal on death row would be. And so I thought this would be a good question <laughs> to ask you and thing to discuss. So what would your uh, last meal be if you were on death row? Ah, oh, interesting that. Um, well, I suppose you wouldn't have to worry about calories anymore, would you? No, or <laughs> like after effects of it. So <laughs> No. No, I would probably want something with like a Yorkshire pudding involvement, like okay, toad in the hole, something like that. Interesting. Yeah, I thought yeah. you'd go something like yeah, pie stodgy. Yeah, yeah, sort of uh, yeah, toad in the hole. That's a, that's a good one. Wow, would you have a starter? <laughs> Maybe a prawn cocktail. Okay. Okay. <laughs> And for pudding, I don't know. Trifle. Trifle, yes. <laughs> A good, proper trifle. Not yeah. Nice. Yeah. Interesting. There you so, go. Yeah, stodge. Stodge. Not what I want to yeah. drink with that. Mm. Maybe a nice South African Shiraz. I was literally going to say that, <laughs> that uh, Arabella wine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um <laughs> Or gin. Or gin, yeah. Maybe a gin with some vermouth, red vermouth. You know, it's a family favourite. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, what would yours be? Um, I think my starter would probably have to be pate of some sort because 
I love pate. Yeah. Um, or some sort of like deep fried cheese. <laughs> so okay, like, yeah, that's true. Fried brie or like halloumi or something. Or like baked that. brie. Yeah, something, something yeah. like that. Um, and then for mains, I think either some like chicken, like really good like southern fried chicken, um, with like mac and cheese and really good chips, or something Mexican-y. So like burritos and and stuff like that. And then for, I, I was really struggling for pudding. Um, maybe I'd like a t- I love a tiramisu. So maybe mm. a tiramisu or um, like a really good cheesecake. Probably okay. Like, but yeah, yeah. Pro- and probably with some like really good beer, like a really good craft <laughs> ale. Like Enville. Like Enville. Or we've just discovered this. Ooh, ginger. Maybe. No, maybe just. No, no. In fact, I had a Juma envelope. Oh, okay. um, but we've just discovered this local one, this local place to us. Um, and they're incredible. You order it and they just bring it around to your house in these bottles. Okay. And they're a legit place. I'll take, they're called Pump House Brewing, I think, or Pump House Brew Co. I'll, uh, I'll share them on Instagram because they're amazing. Oh, okay. And, um, I mean, they're only kind of local to Yorkshire, but I've ordered four bottles for the weekend, so I'll save you some. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but um, yeah, amazing, like micro-brewed local stuff that's really good. So With home delivery? With home delivery, yeah. They just bring it around Impressive. to the house. You left it around the back today. Cause it went wow. In, so, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not sure if our subject of tonight's conversation got to choose a last meal before his execution. Okay. Um, Oh, there's a spoiler alert there. (laughs) Tonight's story is about John George Haig. Okay. Now, I I think his story has been quite well covered uh, on various TV programs and podcasts and things before. There's quite a lot written about him. He's quite fascinating, as we'll find out. But no, if you haven't heard of him, to be honest, I hadn't. But in actual fact, it was Granny that uh, suggested that we... We okay. uh, have a look at this. So uh, thanks, Mum, for the idea. Thanks, Gigi. Yeah. <laughs> hope you hope you find it interesting. And um, you never know, you might might learn something a little different that you perhaps <laughs> hadn't heard before as we, uh, as we go through this. So John George Haig was born on the 24th of July, 1909, in Stamford in Lincolnshire. Okay. Uh, but he actually grew up in Outwood, which is in the West Riding of Yorkshire. His parents were Alfred and Emily, who were members of the Plymouth Brethren, which was an extremely conservative, described as anti-modern Protestant sect of the Christian Church. So it good things wrote, always come from these extremes. <laughs> well, actually, wrote in brackets here, cult question mark. Oh well, but, uh, <laughs> it was, it's more sort of Puritan almost by the sounds of things. It was the um, yeah. Uh, the, the way it's, it's described. So as a result, they lived very austere lives. The, his father built a 10-foot or 3-metre fence all the way around the house to keep outsiders from knowing their business and from right. coming in. Does he want to come and do mine? <laughs> <laughs> I, the uh, philosophy was that the world was evil. Um, he had a very unconventional childhood as a result, and he actually had a little bluish 
blemish, a bluish blemish, a bluish blemish, head, a bluish blemish on his forehead. Um, and he was told as a child that this was the mark of the devil for a sin that he had previously he had previously wow. committed. That's going to uh, set him up for a great yeah, life. Yeah. So he became terrified of gaining other any other signs yes. of the devil on him. And that led to all sorts of nightmares that uh, the, that he used to have. Wow. Things like crosses dripping with blood and things like this. Is oh, my God. How he, how he uh, told them and as, as they reported. And he was told that his mother had no marks of the devil on her at all because she was an angel. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, their only entertainment, bearing in mind this is sort of in the 19... 19- 19 teens, <laughs> 19 teens, uh, were Bible stories. That really. is entertaining. Yeah. I think we should have done that instead. We should have just zoomed and told each other Bible <laughs> stories instead well, maybe, of true crime. Perhaps that should be a different night's podcast. This is a good weekend for Bible stories. It's, it is, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm excited about tomorrow um, doing some decorating and listening to Jesus Christ Friday. So, yeah, very austere lives. Their entertainment was Bible story, reading, um, sports of any kind was forbidden. He didn't have any friends as a result of uh, this lifestyle. Wow. I mean, it's kind of every don't in the parenting book, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Socialised, he wasn't. Anyway, he did learn to play the piano and he was very good at it. And he uh, he gained great proficiency, so much so that he managed to get a scholarship to the Queen Elizabeth Grammar School in Wakefield. And after he uh, did his, I, I don't know how many years he was there, but he then got a further scholarship to Wakefield Cathedral, where he uh, was, a, was a choir boy, amongst oh, cool. other things. Yeah, I'd love Toby to be a choir boy. <laughs> He's, He's got, got the, the hair for it. Yeah. <laughs> so after school, when he finished school, he did a one-year apprentice with a firm of motor engineers, but that only lasted a year. He then got a job in an insurance company uh, where he was doing advertising for them. But then at the age of 21, so what's that, 1930... He was dismissed for alleged theft from a cash box. Okay. So this is a, a sign of things to come. Mm. A few years later, on the 6th of July, 1934, he married. He married Beatrice Betty Hamer, who was 23. A few years younger than him. But, yeah. um, but sadly, the marriage didn't last very long. And in that very same year, 1934, Haig was jailed for fraud. Oh. <laughs> and while he was in prison, Betty gave birth while he was stuck in jail. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it was a baby girl, but she, Betty, put the baby girl up for adoption. And oh. Haig's family ostracised him completely at that stage. I mean, that might not be a bad thing. Well, No. Be interesting to know actually what what may have happened to the uh, the adopted daughter, the daughter yeah. that she had adopted. Uh, she may possibly still be alive, but uh, yeah, maybe just about. Yeah, whether whether she would know. Yeah. So, nineteen thirty four. Yeah. Actually, yeah, she was yeah, she was about eighty six, eighty seven. Yeah. Yeah. Haig was released from prison, um, but he he wasn't out for long before he was found guilty of fraud. Again. 
again, and this time jailed for 15 months of fraud involving cars that were bought on higher purchase, but which I presume he was then selling on, getting the cash right. and not paying the higher purchase. And this okay. set a pattern for his future career in crime. <laughs> <laughs> he was let out of prison in 1936, at which time he moved to London. And he became the chauffeur to a, a William McSwan. Now, William McSwan was the owner of a chain of amusement arcades. Haig also maintained the arcade machinery. Uh, but from what I can see, he didn't actually commit any crimes doing that at all. Okay. He was just working in London and chauffeuring the uh, the owner of the company around. But for some reason, he decided that he wanted to take on the persona of a solicitor. Okay. And he called himself William Cato Adamson. And he set up offices in Chancery Lane, Guildford, and Hastings. Okay. Now, I'm not entirely sure if he actually did have these offices, <laughs> but he claimed to have them. He was fraudulently selling shares from the estates of his clients. So when, when people were dying and there were shares involved in their estates, he was selling these well below the market value and then taking off with the money. The way he was caught as being not a proper solicitor was on his letterheads for his Guildford office. He spelt Guildford without the D. Okay. It's actually Guildford, but he yeah. was spelling it Guildford. And people thought, hang on, this can't be right for a learned yeah. member of the law um, community. <laughs> and he can't get the name of his town right. There's something fishy here. So his uh, fraudulent deeds were discovered and uh, he then spent four years in prison wow so i'm assuming by that point he missed out on being called up for the war well pretty much he was actually released at this very start of world war ii which i think might have been around about 1940 actually by the time he was released right given world war ii started in september 39 yeah yeah he started that job in 36 so it was probably 1940 right to start Upon his release, he carried on doing even more fraud <laughs> and had several more short terms in prison. And he seemed to spend an awful lot of time in prison, especially given that this was during the war. Yeah. So the way I think he avoided any sort of call up um... was <laughs> by just keep being arrested and spending his time in prison. They should have just sent him to war to like well, serve his punishment on the front line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, he wasn't an unintelligent man um and it eventually dawned on him that the reason that he was spending so much time in prison is because he was getting caught and the yeah. reason he was getting <laughs> caught was because his victims were reporting him uh, okay so he thought what i've got to do is get rid of the of the victims that i'm carrying out these frauds against and that's, that's one way to <laughs> deal with it yeah <laughs> yeah so while he was in prison, he was working out all these different ways that he could uh, perhaps commit the perfect murder so that no one would would discover these people's bodies. As part of his investigations, he became very interested in the crimes of George Alexandre Sarre, who was a French well murderer, 
who in 1925 had disposed of his victims' bodies using sulfuric acid. So I thought I would just deviate a little bit away from John Haig and tell you a bit about Saray. Yeah, that'd be uh, cool. So it's like two for the price of one in this, this week. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, John Haig, we'll come back to you. So Saray was born in 1878. Uh, he was actually born in Italy, but he moved to France during his youth. He studied medicine, chemistry and law at the University of Marseille. He then became a lawyer, a proper one. <laughs> an actual where, where he could spell the names of his, uh, <laughs> yeah. the towns that he worked from alleged, allegedly worked from but he also became a bit of a swindler right starting an ambitious life insurance scam now he had two lovers they were german sisters called Catherine and philomena schmidt and he got these two sisters to marry what were unhealthy men. Okay. <laughs> Throw into the mix a third accompanist who was Louis Chambon d'Avenger. Now, he would go to doctors posing as these unhealthy men that the okay. two sisters are married, one at a time, obviously, to get sort of approval for health insurance. Okay. Yeah. So... Right. um yeah, he would turn up and say, I am uh, Catherine Schmidt's husband and look how fit and healthy I am. And so, oh, yes, you can have life insurance. And he'd do that for, he did that for both of them. So, so the unhealthy husbands would be hastened towards their death. And then the life insurance was shared between the perpetrators. Sounds like a perfect plan. After a while, and I, I, I can only presume but my research hasn't, gone deep enough <laughs> after what i think they must have been carrying out other other frauds as well because yeah. at some point saray decided that chambon devinger the healthy man yeah had become a bit too greedy and in 1925 saray murdered him and his mistress and he dumped their bodies in sulfuric acid to dispose of their bodies so this crime was unsolved for six years. And the way it was found out was because Catherine Schmidt carried out another life insurance scam whereby she faked her own death. And she did that by obtaining how she obtained, but she did <laughs> obtain the body of another woman who was very similar to her in complexion height, uh, who evidently had died of tuberculosis. Okay. So with... I mean, lots of them kicking around, I guess. That's all. <laughs> yeah. So with her uh, newfound wealth, she moved to Nice. And when she was there, she fell in love with a new man. Okay. And the pair of them moved back to Marseille. But when she was in Marseille, she was recognised by oh. people saying, hang on a minute, we thought you were dead. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Whoops. <laughs> so police arrested her and she confessed and she also spilt the beans on what Saray had been doing as well. Then mm -hmm. he was arrested. Uh, he managed to delay his trial for two years. Wow. But then in 1933, he was eventually found guilty and he was guillotined later that same year. Wow. The Schmidt sisters actually got 10 years each for their, for their part in the crime. Okay. And in fact, 
Serre was the last person to have been executed in Aix-en-Provence in 1933. So that's a little bit about Georges Serre. There you go. Getting rid of bodies in sulfuric acid is pretty grim, isn't it? It is. But it's quite convincing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if you're trying to hide all your evidence, I guess. Well, we'll come on to that. We'll see. Okay. We'll see. Yeah. All right. So back to John Haig. He was intrigued by what Sarah had done in terms of getting rid of the bodies. So he thought, hmm, I could have a go at this sulfur acid lark. So he worked out a method whereby he would carry out these uh, murders and the body disposals. When he was eventually let out of prison, he experimented by trying this out on mice. He discovered that a dead mouse would completely dissolve after just 30 minutes of being in in sulfuric acid. Jeez. So he was freed from prison in 1943. So the war is well underway at this stage. He became an accountant at an engineering firm. Uh, But one day he literally bumped into his old employer, William McSwan, in a pub in in Kensington. Nice. And William McSwan introduced Haig to his parents, who were Donald and Amy McSwan. Now, what William was doing now was he was basically working as his mum and dad's rent collector because they must... because because they had quite a lot of property in the in the London area, and he was the guy who ran the amusement arcade. He did have the amusement arcades, yeah. yeah. But now he was collecting rents for his for his parents, uh, and he was obviously having quite a good lifestyle. And John Haig was getting envious of <laughs> of this because, uh, as we've probably worked out by now, all these frauds and all this uh, mm. all these crimes are all to try and get money one way or another. Yeah. On the 6th of September 1944, William McSwan disappeared. Haig had lured him to a property that he had at 79 Gloucester Road. When Haig had got McSwan inside the property, he hit him over the head, either to kill him or render him unconscious, and he got him down into the cellar. In the cellar, he had a 40-gallon drum in which he managed to get William McSwan's body into and over the top of that he poured sulfuric acid just two days later the body was just sludge so uh, yeah just this sludge in the bottom of the the barrel pretty grim now because he was in the cellar and quite a lot of cellars have like drains in the floors so what he was able to do was just pour the contents of this oh. drum straight down the drain into the sewer system. And that was it. Gone. Wow. I mean, it's very efficient. It is efficient. He, he thought about this. Yeah. <laughs> so John told William's parents, John Hay told William's parents, Donald and Amy, that William had gone to Scotland to avoid being called up for military service. Okay. So William's parents said, okay, then, John, why don't you take over the rent-collecting business until, until William comes back? So he did, and, and he started, I don't know if they were paying him a good wage or whether he was siphoning off himself or what was happening, but uh, he was doing all right out of it. That worked out well for him, didn't it? It did. It did work out well for him, yeah. Clever that. Yeah. <laughs> but John Haig 
being John Haig, he wanted more. Now, Donald and Amy started becoming suspicious why their son hadn't come home yet, as the war mm-hmm. was obviously coming to to the end. On the 2nd of July, 1944, Haig lured Mr. and Mrs. McSwan to the same Gloucester Road premises, telling them that William was back from Scotland for a surprise visit, and they were all going to meet up there. Wow. <laughs> no one would fall for that today. N- well, no. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as he got them in the building, he murdered them. He got them into the cellar and did the same thing with sulfuric acid in the drum, waited a few days and poured their sludge-like remains down into the sewers. Again, nobody ever saw them again. He stole the McSwan's pension checks that they had and he also sold their properties. Now, how he got away with doing that, I don't know. Wow. But uh, he managed to make quite a lot of money in those days uh, from, from doing all that. And on the uh, proceeds of all that, he moved himself to live in the Onslow Court Hotel in Kensington. Very nice. Very nice indeed, yeah. So he was living there quite happily, but he was a bit of a gambler by this stage as well. And he he was losing money and he needed some more. Mm -mm. And what was the best way that he'd now discovered to make money? Killing people and dissolving them in his cellar. Exactly that, yeah. (laughs) So he found another couple, this time by answering an advertisement that they had put, I'm guessing, a state agent's window or somehow (laughs) for a house that they were selling. He went round posing to be someone who was interested in buying it. Okay. And really was sizing the joint. And he got quite friendly with them. And and this was Dr. Archibald and Mrs. Rose Henderson, husband and wife. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he didn't buy their house. But at some point, they did have a, a party, a housewarming party, and he was asked to go round and play the piano for them. Because oh, wow, remember, okay. he was a very proficient oh, pianist yeah. from his youth. While he was at this party, he stole a revolver that Archibald Henderson had. God. <laughs> now, at this stage as well, Haig had started renting a small workshop in Crawley in Sussex, which is near Gatwick Airport these days. Probably wasn't then. He was also claiming to be a bit of an inventor. So he's spinning all all these tales and yarns and things. And he lured the Hendersons to this workshop in Crawley so that he could show them some of his inventions. You know, they're, they're getting on quite well they're good chums as soon as he got them into this quite small building he shot them using the gun that he'd stolen from them (laughs) during the party (laughs) and he did the same thing he um, with his technique of using big 40 gallon drums and sulfuric acid stuffed the bodies in poured sulfuric acid over them waited a few days what was the point there like how was he going to get anything from them well, he did actually forge letters from them. Oh, okay. And he sold all their possessions. Again, how he managed to do that. Yeah. I guess if they had like keys on them or something, they knew where they lived and he just took their keys and just went and helped himself, whatever. But I, I know. It's weird how, how yeah. it's so easy to sell somebody else's possessions. So that's twice he's done it now. He sold the McSwan's properties. Yeah. And now he's going to be selling the Henderson's properties. 
maybe like everyone was too busy with the war to think maybe. about yeah. <laughs> other things. It's it's very weird how yeah. what would seem like huge red flags going up. Yeah, for someone who was already like a convicted fraudster yeah. who'd been in prison a lot, <laughs> selling all this stuff all of a sudden. Yeah, but by all accounts, he kept their car and he kept their dog. <laughs> okay, well, at least he didn't kill the dog. <laughs> no, he didn't kill the dog. So no, no family pet. No family pets. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't take that one off on the uh, serial killer bingo. This no. Century. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could definitely tick off the dysfunctional relationship. Just, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd say so. <laughs> hmm. So he was living quite a good life on the proceeds from his latest uh, murders. But then after a little while, he started running out of money again. Mm-hmm. Now, in the same hotel that he was living in, the Onslow Court in Kensington, was a woman, 69, called Olive Durand Deacon. Okay. And she was the widow, a very wealthy widow, of a solicitor. She sounds rich. She does, doesn't she? Yeah. (laughs) Durand Deacon. Yeah. Now, remember, by this stage, he was claiming to be an inventor. Okay. With his little workshop down in down in Crawley, and he was uh, he'd befriended her and was chatting to her, and yeah, you know, they were seeing each other every day. And she was talking to him about an idea that she had for artificial fingernails of all okay. things, <laughs> whether or not they were a thing in nineteen forty, well, late forties. I don't know. I don't. I have no idea. I feel like I should know more about the history of artificial nails. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, "Ah, well, I tell you what, come down to my workshop." And we can have a look at an invention that I've been working on, which you might be interested in. Okay. <laughs> so he lured her down to the workshop in Crawley and he shot her in the back oh. with the gun that he'd stolen from the yeah. Hendersons and shot them with. Cool, I'll live. Yeah, and that was on the 18th of February, 1949. So okay. a few years have passed now. Yeah. He stripped her of all her valuables, including a Persian lamb coat. Okay. Which sounds like it could be quite expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and then he did his usual trick with the drum of acid. But a couple of days later, her friend, Constance Lane, reported Mrs. Duran Deacon as missing. Okay. So the police discovered that he had taken Mrs. Duran Deacon on a trip. Uh, and so they managed to trace his movements down to the Crawley workshop. Inside the workshop, they found an attaché case, and in it were papers referring to the Hendersons, to the McSwans, and one of the other things that was in it was a dry cleaning ticket for Mrs. Duran Deacon for her her Persian lamb coat. So there was a definite tie-up between these people that had disappeared and John Hay. Now, the place that he had in Gloucester Road in the cellar, as we mentioned earlier, had a drain in the floor that he could pour the sludge into. But the workshop in Crawley didn't have that. So what he had to do was pour it outside and around the back of the workshop. There was just like waste ground and piles of rubble and stuff like that. He was just pouring the contents of the drum, which was mostly sludge, into all this rubble. This started to be investigated, and, and this is really quite—I um, don't know—for 1949, this is quite good forensic detective yeah. work, I think. But when the when the pathologist was rummaging through all this stuff, 
he discovered or he managed to retrieve a total of 28 pounds. That's like two stone. Wow. Of human fat that, that was oh, just wow. sort of lying in amongst all this rubble. Oh, wow. Yeah. They also found part of a human foot. Oh. They found gallstones, <gasps> which hadn't dissolved, and part of a set of dentures, which oh, were later identified okay. as belonging to Mrs. Durand Deacon. So I suppose before, all this lot would have gone down the sewer. Yeah. But because he was just sort of on waste ground. Yeah. yeah. And I guess you probably <laughs> just... couldn't tell by looking into the top of it what was in there, and it was all mixed together, and yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, it was just poured out on the ground, basically. Yeah, but I mean, like, when you poured it out, you probably didn't realise oh, that yeah. there was you that stuff have... left in it. Because... No, exactly, yeah. It would have just gone, yeah. yeah. You might have noticed the foot yeah. and the dentures and things. Yeah, because it was all just yeah. in the slush. Hay <laughs> <sighs> hey, confessed to the killings. Three McSwans, two Hendersons, and one Mrs. Duran Deacon. Yep. That's six people. He also claimed to have killed a young man called Max. Okay. <laughs> Um, a young girl from Eastbourne and a woman from Harrowsmith, but those have never been substantiated, but he okay. claims to have killed them. It wasn't long, really. I mean, considering that he'd done away with Mrs. Durand Deacon on the 18th of February, his actual trial started on the 1st of April, 1949, ah. which is um, 72 years ago to this very day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was a very quick turnaround from finding her to... I mean, trials take months, years sometimes to put together, so... They must have had a solid case. (laughs) They must have done, yeah. (laughs) Now, his defence was insanity, but that was discounted as he had demonstrated malice aforethought. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, given that he'd thought all this process through, yeah, clearly it wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. No, no. (laughs) There was quite some... uh... Some thought that went into what he did, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that didn't hold up in court. And Haig also misinterpreted the legal term corpus delecti. Okay. Now, corpus delecti is the term used to prove that a crime had actually taken place. Right. You can't be tried for a crime that hasn't happened. So his thinking was, if there's no body... Right. Well, okay. you know, if there's no bodies of my victims left, then they can't prove murder. Right. And that's that's how he was planning on getting away with it. But because they did discover those uh, bits and pieces, yeah. the fat and the gallstones and the uh, the dentures, uh, yeah, it was enough wow. time to the murders. That's quite some forethought, though, to think this is the reason that they won't be able to convict me because there won't be a body. That's definitely not insanity, is it? No, 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 he was just... I mean, it's it's pretty (laughs) crazy, but it's not insanity. (laughs) Obviously, he was convicted of murder and the jury found him guilty within minutes, I think, if not not very long. Uh, And, of course, he was uh, sentenced to death. Wow. And he was hanged on the 10th of August, 1949. Wow, they didn't hang around. They didn't, they didn't no. hang around with that, did they? <laughs> no, no, and he was just forty. Wow, okay. So we packed quite a lot into his uh, forty years. Yeah, <laughs> my goodness, but a lot of that time in prison. Killed a lot, a lot of, of time in prison early on. Yeah, a lot of time killing people and yeah. uh, 
living off ill-gotten gains. Now, there's a few spin-offs and a few strange twists. One of them being that the editor, the then editor of the Daily Mirror, was sentenced to three months in prison for contempt of court for describing Haig as a murderer before he was actually found guilty. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so they were in re- in newspaper reports during the trial. They were yeah. just referring oh, to him murderer. as the murderer. Said no, until yeah. he's proven guilty, he is not a murderer. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, there are quite a few um, retellings of this story. Um, one of the more famous ones is a television adaptation called A is for Acid, oh, okay. where Martin Clunes actually played the part of John Hay in no that. Way. Yeah. And he is also displayed in Madame Tussauds. And it's actually something that he arranged himself before what? he died. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, he was very, um, he was He was quite engaged with his execution to the point where he was asking for dress rehearsals. He wanted to make oh, wow, sure, okay. he wanted to make sure that the hangman knew just how heavy he was so that uh, he could get the drop right and all the rest of it for oh, his wow. hanging. And, and they said, no, nah, don't worry. You know, he's a pretty experienced player. You know, he was he was really taking it seriously. Madame Tussauds, or a representative from Madame Tussauds, actually came into the prison and spent quite a few hours with him talking about wow. how he was going to be displayed. And he gave them clothes that he instructed them to for him to be dressed in. No way. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. cool. I'm surprised yeah. they honoured it, though. Like, and I, and I believe there's even a death mask that Madame Tussauds took of him so they could get his face right. Wow. <laughs> so he's still on display at Madame Tussauds in the Chamber of Horrors. Now, whether he's wearing the same clothes now as he originally donated in 1949, I don't know. Um, no idea. <laughs> but also at the London Museum... Uh, they have some other relics from his crimes. They have the gloves and apron that he used to wear when he was oh well, particularly sort of throwing the acid away so he didn't get burnt himself. Yeah. Have they got all those dentures? Yes, they have. They're actually there. The, no gallstone, way. <laughs> the gallstones and the dentures are actually on display there as well. No way. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. So this who's, story... Do they know whose gallstones they were? I, I'm not sure if they were... No. Okay. It could be one of three, really. It could either be yeah. one of the Hendersons or Mrs. Duran. I guess with her age, it was possibly more likely to be hers. But, yeah. Could be, yeah. I guess the Hendersons weren't that old. But, yeah. Wow. These gallstones, these gallstones that we found and the dentures are indeed on display. There you go. We'll have to go to these places and <laughs> look at there the dentures a, and the gallstones. There is a picture... Um, of the gloves and the apron they used to wear as modelled by a policeman. And I'll put that on our Instagram page and Facebook oh, page. Okay. Yeah. Now that we have a Facebook page. No, they have a Facebook page, yeah. So these are sometimes referred to as the acid bath murders. Okay. Though there was no actual bath involved. No. It was all sort of like oil drums or, yeah, containers. But, uh, yeah, so those are the acid bath murders of John Haig. Wow. Of the 1940s. That's great. Thanks. How would you get hold of so much acid? I don't know. Quite um, a lot. That was what I was thinking. Where do you go and buy? I guess it's possibly easier to get it then than it would be now. Like if you bought 40 
gallons of acid, someone would probably be suspicious of you for doing that. I should think so, yeah. A bit like going into buy arsenic these days, whereas it used yeah. to be quite easy, didn't it? Or like you said about that guy going to the shop and buying like bin bags and yeah. cable ties and all that sort of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh gosh, I won't ever buy a roll of bin bags again. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's when, you, it's when if you buy it with like a shovel and cable ties yeah. and on a rope and <laughs> um, quick live at the same yeah. time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So all those things together that dodges not well. <laughs> I guess that's probably why people don't do it so much today, isn't it? Because probably, it's probably yeah. quite difficult to get hold uh, of that about it. <laughs> I think they've uh, tightened up on this. So. I remember. I think I watched a program once, and they were because they were talking about the fact that burial and cremation are both quite bad for the environment, and the fact that um, well, cremation definitely burial not mm. so much, but it pollutes like water sources and stuff like that and then the sorts of people get buried in but then the cremation creates a huge amount of pollution that goes yeah. into the environment and that in america you can be dissolved now mm-hmm. instead of um cremated and it is much more environmentally friendly and they'll they literally kind of just put you in a bath of sulfuric acid and... uh, well I, I don't i'm not sure if they use acid so much but or, there oh, is okay. um i think sanwell crematorium which can't be very far from where oh, i'm at the moment yeah. they've got this new process and I'm not entirely sure what it is. Uh, I'd have to look it up. I remember reading about it before, but basically the body is just sort of dissolved. Yes. And it's much more environmentally body. friendly. Yeah. But then do they just yeah. like wash you down the drain. Well, basically, yeah. And I think it, it manages it manages to destroy any traces of DNA and stuff. And it's wow. uh, I can't I mean yeah. sulfuric acid in the environment can't be great, can it? No. No. <laughs> it's probably not that. Else, but... There's, yeah, there's a process of basically dissolving people rather than mm. cremating them or burying them. Yeah. But burying, I mean, burying, I suppose, is the most natural, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I guess it depends what you get buried in, doesn't it? Yeah, that's true. Like, if you get, like, wicker coffins and stuff, they'll biodegrade much easier than, like, solid... Chipboard. Chipboard, yeah. <laughs> Talking of which, I, I watched this week's Exhumed. <laughs> oh, yeah, what happened? <laughs> Uh, it was quite a good one, actually. They actually did get evidence off. Oh, the that's bodies. good. <laughs> Been buried for twenty-seven years. Wow! Um, but apparently, she was quite well preserved. Again, they brought out what they call the vault, okay, which is the thing that they put in the ground first, and then yeah. they put the coffin inside that. When again, it was full of water when they actually dragged it out of the ground. But the coffin itself was quite. Um, or the casket, I should say, was quite well preserved, that's and cool. and so was the body inside. Oh, that's so I good. guess she must have been been bombed. Yeah, she she was murdered. Well, uh, evidently she was murdered because at the time they put it down to suicide, but uh, in okay. 1985, and it was 2012 when they. Wow. Well, okay. But they could actually still see the the ligature marks around her neck. No way. Why they didn't pick it up properly in the first autopsy that they yeah. did. But they could tell that the way that the lines were couldn't possibly have been from self-hanging. Uh, it had okay. to have been from. And also they proved that it was um, that the marks were caused by a belt, not okay. the rope that her then husband claimed that he'd found her hanging from. Wow. God, I bet he thought he got <laughs> away with it as well. He did, yeah. Yeah. <gasps> 20 or 25 years later. 
That's crazy. Oh. So. Uh, there you yeah, go. That was, that, was, that was quite a good one. Mm. <laughs> As it were. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know what you mean. <laughs> so there we go. It's uh, go. our talk of death for this week. Oh, by the way, I gather we're both reading the same book at the moment. We are, yes. Well, inspired by your recommendation <laughs> last week. Uh, which I'm not sure whether made it into the final I, edit I don't or think not. you did actually. No. <laughs> <laughs> we spoke quite a lot last week talking about um, it, as if we were to talk, talk about it. Yeah, Unnatural Causes by Dr. Richard Shepherd. He is a forensic pathologist. He has carried out a lot of autopsies and a lot of investigations into deaths. Mm. Some of them really quite famous. The one I've just finished reading about was The Marchioness. Pleasure uh, boat disaster that happened on the Thames when right. a huge, great big dredger, which was many, many more times bigger than the little pleasure boat, mm. which had about 130 something people on. <gasps> it was a party boat just sort of going up and down the Thames, you know, a bit of a disco and yeah. things. Got hit by this massive dredger, sunk very, very quickly. Oh my God. Um, and it's, it's quite fascinating. Uh, And he also was involved in identification. Most of it's about identification when it's when it's those sort of disasters. The cause of death is pretty obvious with drowning or or whatever. And and the other one he did was the Clapham train disaster, where a total of three trains crashed into each other in the eighties. Quite a fast train went through a green green light, not a red light. The signal was telling the driver to carry on. And it was going quite fast, and it went straight to the back of a stationary train. Uh-uh. Uh, and a, quite a lot of people were killed. And again, it was about identification. Okay, I think um, that so it, it starts, isn't it, talking about the Hungerford shooting? Hmm. And I'd never heard of that. Okay. Um, and so that was quite interesting. I listened to a great podcast on that as well. Um, and it was seeing red, I think, who the podcast did who did it it was very good um i just read the bit when they're talking about their first son not sleeping <laughs> and that whole thing about getting out of bed and like getting into bed and getting hungry <laughs> and they wake up and they cry and have to get out again and then him being diagnosed with the cow's milk allergy and stuff and uh yeah it all just uh <laughs> so yeah mm. day job in it my day job in it so yeah, yeah, that's yeah. quite funny <laughs> quite interesting so um yeah but that whole yeah that feeling of he writes really well. I think he writes really, um, like, it's palpable almost, like what he's saying, yeah. that you can feel it. Yeah. And when he was talking about getting into bed and the baby crying, I was like, oh, my God, like, I can just feel it. <laughs> yeah. So his wife was training to be a doctor. Yeah. Later on in life, he got these two young children. He was being called out all times of the day and night to go to, yeah, deaths yeah. and things. So <laughs> examining bodies in situ before they're then moved to the morgue for him to then do the yeah. post-mortem on it. Must, I think as the book is trying to explain that his marriage was under an awful lot of strain. Yeah. I haven't yeah. got to the conclusion of that bit yet. But, no. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and really well written and a really easy to read book, I think. Yeah. And and like I, like I was saying earlier, like it's, it's in depth in that it doesn't kind of skimp on details but it's not gratuitous yeah sure so you kind of feel like you get a really good picture of what's going on it's not like censored but it's not 
really gory and gross and too much. It's just, I think it's really respectful. So yeah, it's really good. I'm enjoying it a lot. So that's Unnatural Causes by Dr. Richard Shepherd. Yeah. Good book. Have a read. It's got some, yeah, yeah, if you're interested in death and the processes of death and what happens after death, it's uh, interesting. The fact that bodies can twitch for hours after they've died as muscles and things. Mm relax and shut down and then go into rigor mortis and, and what have you it's uh yeah it's like fascinating uh, yeah i think it's really interesting how bodies just how life is so like fragile mm-hmm. it doesn't take very much for it to well you know once it's gone then it just destroys itself quite quickly like within minutes decomposition starts isn't it really it does yeah there's um good section on chapter on decomposition oh i'm excited <laughs> <laughs> i saw this thing once it was like a cross stitch and it had like the different stages of decomposition in it, it was, oh how lovely <laughs> nice thing to have on yeah nice thing to have on your wall isn't it <laughs> anyway hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of dad and daughter do death yes thanks for listening and you- um we've got our instagram page um with a great photo of the dog holding me at knife point uh from the sick yeah that was <laughs> uh, murderous dog scary. <laughs> i have no idea where we got it from that's the scariest thing <laughs> it's okay drop it now um, <laughs> and i've just set up our facebook page which yeah. mostly doesn't actually have anything on it yet but by the time this goes out hopefully it will <laughs> um dad and daughter do death dad and daughter do death and our email address is death at gmail.com. Do get in touch if you're enjoying listening to us and uh, if you've got any suggestions or anything you'd like us to cover. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for all of you for the reviews and the comments and the likes and everything so far. Um, I mean, we're not doing it for that. We're doing it as something fun to do. But it's nice to hear that people are enjoying listening to it as much as we're enjoying doing it. Yeah, that's good. Yes, got us through the last eight or nine weeks. I yeah, suppose, I, I was thinking that it, it must be like nine weeks since we started, yeah. which is pretty much most of this lockdown. So, yeah, yeah. it's been good. It has been good, it's and been um, good. I'm keen to carry on. Yeah, so. it's your turn next week. My turn next week. I think I know what I'm going to do. Oh, good. So, yeah, <laughs> I started doing some research. I wanted to do something a bit different. So, yeah. Cool. We'll see. Right. Um, I hope it's going to be interesting enough. It seems interesting from the outline, but I hope I can find enough further information about it. But we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> it's and, it's uh, probably not going to be that at all when I get to it. It'll be something that I find last minute, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I look forward to that, Phoebe, next week when once yeah. again, Dad and daughter do death.